Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I'm your host, Mark Anthony Peterson. This is the podcast where CEOs, founders, market leaders, and market makers come to discuss the future of the gig, sharing, and platform economies. I hope you are enjoying our gigging news segments. Every month, my co-host and I are bringing you the top six stories that are impacting the sharing, gig, and platform economies. Today, we have another interview with one of these market makers. Yes, their CEO of Verblio, Steve Pockross. If you're struggling to manage your brand, to manage social media posts, Steve is going to tell you how to use the platform economy to bring those skills in-house and to deploy them on demand. I really enjoyed this interview because it shows how far the gig sharing and platform economies are going to transform commerce. So now here's my interview with Steve Pockross. To the podcast. We have a fascinating show for you today. We have the CEO of Verbillo. Did I pronounce that correct? Verbillo? Verblio. Verblio. Mr. Steve Pockross. He is going to talk to us about a number of different, different topics today, innovating the future of work, why content is so important, and then how his company can help you think through all of the above. But before we jump into that, let me tell you a little bit about him. He has an MBA from the Kellogg School of Business and an MA in history from Wesleyan. He has more than 20 years of startup, Fortune 500, and nonprofit experience. He served as the Vice President of Business Development and Strategy and also spearheaded the creation of the award-winning Live Ops Foundation. He also served in marketing, strategy, and operational leadership roles at Tendria Western Union Marketing Technologies Group, in HSBC. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Mark. It's an, it's an honor to be here. Well, before we jump in, we've learned a lot about, about your background, but we don't know a whole lot about you. Tell us what makes you laugh and what inspired you to to, uh, to lead this company. Where to begin with this one? So uh, I'm from Denver, Colorado. You covered some of the highlights of my background. Um, 
I think there's some themes in there uh, that I, that are important. So I started in Denver and then I basically spent about 20 years away from Denver and then came back for 10 years. Um, so the geography is kind of an interesting part. I studied uh, in the East Coast. I went to business school in the Midwest. I lived in South America for two years. I lived in Santiago, Chile for a year, studying at the university and working as a reporter. And then I lived in Rio de Janeiro for a year, working for um, the Brazilian Development Bank. So all of that kind of comes together. And then I spent about 15 years in San Francisco working in startups as well. And uh, in the last 10 years, I've been back in Colorado. My, uh, my story, basically, I started out after college becoming fascinated by community development financial institutions, which is a, a little off the beaten path from, our, from the normal gig economy discussions. But for me, this was all about innovating new business models. How do you take something that exists, which is very clear cut finance, finance, financial models, investment cycles, and how do you apply this to a whole new sector and leverage these things together to create something new? So a lot of that became my passion. It's why I got into startups. In 2004, I had a monumental uh, learning experience by getting to join a company called LiveOps when we were uh, a smaller startup. It was started by a bunch of the early Netscape team, and they were trying to innovate on the concept of how do you create the next, the next call center of the future by using technology and a new business model. And so we eventually built that into $150 million uh, business with 20,000 home-based call center agents. Um, and we kind of, we were, so it was uh, in the first crowdsourcing, which is a, a type of gig economy company. Uh, the first crowdsourcing company, we were hosted as kind of like the grandfathers of crowdsourcing. And I feel like I was very fortunate to be there at the beginning, which was how do you combine technology and a new business model with freelance workers to deliver a higher level of value to clients? And I got to see that in 2004 and it hooked me. And that's all I wanted to do ever since. Uh, and so I stayed there for about eight years and helped develop new business models for them. Uh, and after bopping around the startup scene here in Colorado for a while, I was very fortunate to be given the reins of Verblio as the CEO about four years ago, uh, where I got to really apply similar type of model to the content creation space where uh, I got to balance working with great freelance writers and video creators and also with kind of the new digital marketing era, which is uh, has a lot more, let's say, a lot more changes in the digital marketing world on a daily basis than the call center world. So I feel pretty honored to be here. Well, they should be honored to have you. I mean, you have a wealth of experience. And like you say, you predated some of these terms that we throw around freely now, like gig economy, freelance economy. You were on the beginning of that, that trend and truly are the, the dean or the godfather uh, of crowdsourcing. So let's drill down into that for a little bit. Let's talk about innovating the future of work. Why are executives struggling to keep certain skills like the ones that you provide now up to par within their organizations? So I think the, the structure of the, the, the modern company is going through a massive transformation, which is that we have always thought of this as, first of all, first companies were command and control, which was we have all of our employees are internally, which basically means with that structure, you get maximum control, but you also, with every employee, you either get too little or too much of what you need. You're rarely matching the exact skill set that your company needs at that level. We kind of had the golden age of outsourcing starting in the 50s with customer support centers, outsourced uh, outsource accountants and things of that level is that we started to open up a little more of the professional services and some of the lower level support. 
Uh, and then the gig economy is really kind of reframing the entire concept, which is we now have to have an ecosystem for every company. You have to have partners. Your modern business is just way too complex and there's way too many skills for you to just be on top and say this level, this employee is going to get this level of skill. One of my the favorite stats that I that I heard in the last year is I interviewed John Windsor. He's the CEO of OpenAssembly, which is a uh, hopefully a, a company that you're that your your group is familiar with is that they uh, they focus on the future of work as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the stats he always uses is that the average company, uh, the CEO John Windsor, is that the average company invests about 0.3% of every employee's salary in their training every single year. And a freelancer invests 15% of her or his earnings into getting better and improving their skills. So to boil that answer down is basically too complex, too many skills out there. Freelancers are developing their skills automatically, so they're providing it to you for a service and flexibly. And the next wave of the, the, the future of work is figuring out what part of your ecosystem goes to each one of those components, in my view. That's a very powerful answer. It, essentially, if you have a knife and don't use it, it gets dull. And if you're not matching demand with the uh, supply, that imbalance produces opportunities for those employees to sell those services elsewhere. And in this economy, you're right. You're not going to keep it, those skills up to par if you're not using them uh, proactively at the level where they can stay as razor sharp within your organization. So as we peel that onion a little bit more, what are some of the critical workforce skills that companies are, are struggling to keep? So I have much, I have less of a broader view of the market on far as those skills goes, but I know a lot about the writing skills that companies are looking for. Okay. So one of the challenges that companies are looking for is how do we keep our writers engaged and how do we write the right amount of content versus most companies are doing it based on the amount of content they can write with the writers. Uh, and so you're basically kind of limiting yourself on, on the availability of the subject matter expertise, the style, the breadth, the type of content by only using one type of writer and trying to keep that in-house. So I think that's kind of one of the main areas. There's a lot of, of a lot of your podcast focuses on the ability to tap into just a wider fountain of, of skill sets. And I think that when you open that up and you use the gig economy in a marketplace like ours to get to it, to access it, that you you can tap into a lot more of the power. You can find somebody who's a subject matter expert who is not burned out by writing 80 blogs about your company every single month and they have just nothing else to add because you've it's it's a it becomes like a factory job for a creative, which is a really hard thing to do. And the diversity of those voices might actually surprise you and bring more value to your company. And they're going to tap in to so many different perspectives that they could probably bring fresh ideas to your business. Yes, what I found when I was a consultant at Accenture is that attacking the same problem at multiple companies opened up new ways to solve those uh, same old problems. And we were able to use a, a knowledge exchange uh, to make sure that we applied that best thinking every time we attack the same problem. I would imagine you get that with these kind of freelancers who are out there in the marketplace working for multiple companies. 
Yeah, that's well, that's well said. The Accenture example in, in consulting and be able to see patterns in society and then how do our and other companies that are using as best practices and then leveraging them in a different vertical, I think, is a really profound part of the advantage that you get. I think topic creation is another great example. You're a company, you're the marketer, all you're thinking of is the exact same topics. You leverage a pool of 20 writers instead of one. They've seen what are good, effective topics across all of the different verticals and what could work for you and really make your content strategy more robust. So let's drill down on that a little bit more. We talked about a couple of best practices. Are there any others that you would offer up to the audience when selecting freelance writers to contribute to their company's content? So it would, uh, some of this is what we, what we think about all the time. So we are a platform and we'll talk more about Verblio later, but in general, we are applying a marketplace of writers that we heavily curate up front. Then we're applying our SaaS technology about how to get the content creation done and then professional services for how to plug, how to plug into your ecosystem if you want it kind of full service or you're ready to just use it as a SaaS tool. And so one of the things I think that we add the most value in is that we heavily curate who our writers are. So we don't have a, a selection of one to five star writers. We only have Verblio level writers. So I would look to a partner to do that level of creation. If you're going to do work at scale, if you're going to do, you know, you're looking for one freelancer, that's an easier thing to, to interview for. But if you're looking for a pool of, of five to 10, uh, that's a lot of work. And it'd be great to know at least the base level. Number one is they have to at least be able to write and have the fundamentals as strong as you need. Level two is do they get is the level of subject matter expertise. So we segment all of our writers by 39 verticals that they've written for successfully and have proven in the marketplace. And then uh, after that is really about preference. Do you do you like their tone? Is their style up to place? Download your preference. We ask all of our clients to download their preferences and provide a ton of feedback. And the more that you can onboard a freelancer like you would an employee, the more value you're going to get out of them. So I think those are really the three categories is Use a partner where it makes more sense to heavily curate up front. Look for subject matter expertise in addition to the skill set and then work on fit after that. Actually, I have one more that I've just thought of, which is another big part of the, our platform is that we have our writers, instead of selecting a writer based on their background, what they look like, we um, have our writers submit pieces of work. So that you're grading them on their product as opposed to what I think is a big challenge in the gig economy, which is you're looking at someone's profile. You have no idea what work they're doing. And I think this disadvantages you in a couple of ways. One is you don't get to evaluate their product. You're mostly seeing if they're a fit for what you are looking for. And then I think it also offers some challenges on the diversity and inclusiveness front of, you know, you don't know your natural biases. Most companies are just looking for someone who fits exactly like everyone else in their company. And if you're just looking at product, you might find somebody who's a better fit after, after all. I like that last piece. And in some earlier podcasts, I've talked to companies, particularly developers, that pose the question of whether or not they're retaining a work history, as well as a quality rating around that so that future customers would know if the type of skill and output matched what they were trying to uh, integrate into their companies. Are you doing that? And it sounds like you are. And if you are, what sort of ways to score or qualify that content are you leveraging to help companies make sure they're getting a good match? I, this is one of my favorite parts of this job. So we we here in the gig economy that are putting together kind of platforms of technology and business models and working with people, it's like a giant social behavior experiment lab. 
you play with your incentives, you try to figure out how do you get the most out of them, you generally get some of it right, some of it wrong, and then you have to keep iterating. And the second that you think you've nailed incentives, all of a sudden, everything completely changes and you have to be on top of it. So I think this is really fun. And I think all of us should look at this as exciting. And the challenge that you pulled out is really one of the bigger ones, which is the way that we do this. So let me start off with a with an interesting kind of anecdote, which is we have a new here's an example. We have a new client come on board. They're only, you know, they're looking to do 30, 40 blogs a month or buy 10 white papers or something of that nature. Uh, we will, they will put in their preferences and our writers will match them, but we'll also seed that pool with some writers that we think would be a good fit. The writers that fit that this top client chooses what has been rated number or a five-star writer for, you know, the last five clients, this this new client can't stand this writer and gives them a two. Somebody who's been a two for the last five clients becomes a five. So for me, the important part is uh, we grade based on how many clients are accepting their pieces of work. That's the number one and their feedback towards them. And we give the writers a lot of uh, some leeway if they're trying out a new client and they're just not a fit. We don't want to ding them for giving a try, but we want to, we want to reward them for their consistency once they found that fit. So we have a rating system and that's based on client feedback. We also do our own kind of level of QA where we'll go through and just check quality scores. Some things are just must haves, like your writing must be solid, your grammar must be right, your syntax, all of the things that are just a normal part. Then there's the structural aspects of it, of SEO formatting, things of that nature. Those are super black and white and easy to measure. And I think the gig economy companies that focus on black and white measurements have it easy. Like the, the, the Uber score of did, your, did you get taken to the right place? Was it on time? Like that is a really feels like a, a really kind of black and white. Did you like a piece of creative content where you gave a brief? The brief might have been pretty on content or on, on point, but might not have been. And then did the writer get you right afterwards, I think, as part of the heart. And that's going to be the, the trick when looking at more white collar services and trying to provide this sort of support for them is to find the right mix of objective and subjective criteria for managing and scoring their work history so that they can be rewarded and to create some stickiness on your platform so that they know that there's some correlation between their input and their their ultimate paycheck. Yeah, the skilled gig economy is gonna be a whole new challenge. So you have like your micro task where you have your commoditized labor like the Ubers of the world and the platform does all the work and the humans are basically widgets and inputs into the system all the way up to like your past experience of uh, you know management consulting where you have a one-on-one -on -one and then you can only manage you can only grade four projects for the full, for the whole year but there's going to be more and more platforms like us in writing that are doing skilled labor and bringing a platform to to curate it that should have enough repetitions so that we can get better and better at answering your question of who's good and who's not. Now, you probably have gotten enough volume through your platform where you're noticing trends in content, which is ultimately what you're trying to produce. What are the types of content that you're seeing consumers demand today? And has there been a shift that has been impacted by some of what we see in the current day's environment, like the pandemic? Uh, yeah. So. We, our company is very fortunate to live at the future of work, meeting the future of marketing. And it's a really great intersection because both of them are super nimble and changing all the time. The future of marketing, I think on the content side uh, has some major trends that we, so we produce 70,000 pieces of unique content every year. We work for uh, probably 5,000 different clients every year. Um, and so we get to see uh, what top marketers are doing at any given time, a good 
two thirds of our business is with digital marketing agencies that are showing us what they think is the most effective in the marketplace. So some of what I can share for you is one of the biggest trends we've seen is the dramatic shift towards what long form content. Long form is a very ambiguous word that has been it's used by everyone, but it doesn't really have a common definition across the board. I use it as uh, blog posts, white papers that are over a thousand words versus under. Think of you know five paragraphs versus a few pages. So you're getting much more in depth. One data point on that is. To, uh, when I first came on board in 2016, less than 7% of what, what Verblio wrote for our clients was over a thousand words. It's currently two thirds of what we write. So if you're writing really short posts, most of it has been towards, there's a lot of really short posts still out there, but there's much less kind of like of the middle range and a lot more towards 1500 and 2000, which are now taking over the world. And the reason that we're doing that, that that's happening is for really good reasons. One is Google's always trying to improve their algorithm for what is useful content. And so it's based on comprehensiveness. Did you answer all the questions that we're looking for, that your clients were looking for? And is it fresh? So basically Google's looking for, are you writing for humans now, as opposed to, are you scoring keywords? which means we like to read comprehensive material versus clickbait. I think that's a great trend. Another big trend that is uh, is interactive content, which is more of, there's been more and more focus about not just how much you write, covering all your keywords and the SEO strategy, but there's been a lot more focus on how easy is it for, uh, for your audience to consume your content? Is it well-designed? Is it broken into paragraphs? Do you have infographs in there? Uh, do you have video attached for people who wanna consume it through multimedia channel and have different preferences? Uh, so we're doing a lot more with video these days and uh, design. Um, I think uh, some of the things that have changed through the pandemic is that there's been a lot more focus on uh, an immediate result. So one of the challenges of content marketing is it is the long haul. Once you build content, it stays with you forever. Paid marketing is out the door the second that you pay for it in, in, in the next day, but it takes a lot bigger investment and investment time. And nobody feels a particular sense of, uh, of patience uh, post pandemic. So there's been a, a fast forward of what types of SEO and content projects can you do in the short term? And a lot of that has been for short term results has been focused on repurposing content. And so some examples of that is basically repurposing from any format that you have existing. Um, some of, uh, some marketers are using the zero waste dis expression for take a piece of content, get the most use out of it. If you have uh, 3000 blogs, go refresh them, take your top 10%, uh, add new keywords to them, refresh 30%, Google. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. People think it's new and then you can score immediately and basically leverage an existing asset. If you have a podcast, turn that into five blog posts. Uh, summarize your last five podcasts into a quick ebook. Um, add video um, to anything that doesn't have video and anything that's only video, turn that into uh, to blog posts. So I think this repurposing and doing it faster, quicker has been a big trend that we've seen accelerating. It sounds to me like the SEO and the algorithms are the primary reason why a lot of these organizations are struggling to produce this level of content. Before these were introduced into the market, you could put content out there and it probably had an impact and would give you a positive ROI. Right. Now, if you don't know how to manage the algorithms, you don't know or have an effective SEO strategy, the content's not producing for you. And you need people who know how to not only produce the content, but how to leverage it as you just described. That's exactly right on. Like this is why digital agencies are two thirds of our business now. It's not because people weren't using them before, it's because you have to. Every marketing channel, as it progresses through the life cycle of its impact, becomes more challenging. Now it's a necessity to have it, but you need more expertise. And this also goes, this is also flows with the reason that you use freelancers. Marketing agencies are freelancers with marketing expertise. Um, so to leverage them, and then a platform like Verblio that, you know, for self-serving purposes, but I also think is really important on the marketing side is to produce the right level of content back to an earlier point, which is you can now be creative with the amount of content that you wanted to create. Do you want to use this as a competitive advantage? What if you came in and produced a hundred pieces of content every single month because you have a writing force behind you that gets you and can do that and blow all of your competitors out of the water because they can't replace it. And one of the ongoing rules of content is if you're first, you get to create that moat and that moat lasts you a really long time more than most other marketing channels. Give us an example of that, because I, I love that mode example. I'm a guy that has a shield and sword hanging on my wall upstairs. So help us understand. Give us an example of a company that successfully created that moat content and claimed that space. Awesome. I'll, I'll do it in two spaces. I'll do it in kind of a bigger MarTech thought leadership way. And then I'll talk about kind of more of a classic SEO strategy for legal companies. So I talk a lot with Mark Organ, who is the founder and uh, CEO of Eloqua, which sold to Oracle, I believe. But they were one of the early marketing automation companies. And Mark uh, often claims in a lot of his interviews that because Eloqua was so focused on creating content, they basically created a thought leadership bridge, which had help them in multiple ways, which is one is you get to be seen as the thought leader, you develop a premium brand, you get to charge more for it, it's easier to close in your funnel. So many more, there's so much more value to content than just the SEO that we generally get into these conversations. And they were winning that space until HubSpot came along. And HubSpot created so much content, 10 to 100x with what uh, Eloqua could do. They quickly took over that space and nobody's been able to catch them. If you if you Google anything on content marketing or inbound, there's it's unlikely you'll find anything except a HubSpot blog. And that has done amazing things to fuel that company. 
So that's kind of on like the big thought leadership disruptive space. And then you have kind of more of like the legal SEO. There's very few places that are more competitive on the digital marketing world than legal and SEO. These terms are extremely expensive. So one of our biggest clients is uh, called uh, rankings.io. Uh, and they do SEO only, and they only they niche down their product to only focus on SEO, and they niche down their clients to only focus on personal injury attorneys. And their goal is to work with the top three personal injury firms in every metro area. And they use us because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we created a product for them where we have a lawyer that is the editor of every piece of content. So you have legal reviewed content that you can do at scale and high quality. And then they use that to infuse every new client they have with a giant SEO rush of uh, basically content power um, to get them started so they immediately start ranking much more quickly. Uh, and it's really hard to do that in a upfront sort of way, um, but it's one of the strategies that's being used and it's part of the reason that we're helping companies enable these strategies. That makes sense, that makes sense. And I know what people in the audience are probably gonna think, I want some of what you just described, but how do I make sure the content writers understand and capture my business tone, my style, and my business personality. Can you give us some best practices on how freelancers can be incorporated in and can achieve that, that business tone, personality, and style of a business so that it, it sounds and feels exactly like what would be produced by the founders of the company? What you're talking about is the most critical piece. The, the only way that you will find value in using freelancers for writing is if you get this right. And so uh, part of this is our effort of how we try to client, guide clients. And uh, a big part of this is what you should be doing uh, as, a, uh, as the client. So I think one of the first important premises that I, that I hold dear is that you need to treat your freelancers like they're employees and extensions of your team. I think way too many people when they engage with freelancers or, 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 or maybe shorter term um, partners, think of them as kind of like, I'm going to throw the work over the fence. You're just going to get it and you're either going to get it right or it's gone. Uh, and I like to think of the 90 day onboarding or 120 day onboarding that usually is expected before a new, a new employee becomes productive. So think of that in the way that you're treating our platform as opposed to just one writer. Uh, and that's a starting point of the mentality. Um, First is to down, the next is to download your preferences. So we have a style guide. We ask you to put in your brand guidelines. We ask you uh, a bunch of questions about what your, your feedback is. And the most important question that we ask is what is an example of the type of content that you like? If we can see that, there's so much better chance of us, our writers figuring out if they're a good fit for you or not. So we ask that you spend a lot of time on your business information background. Every writer is going to read it. The same, we do the same with every topic creation. So once you create your business background, then you'll have, um, you know, dozens of topics and each one of them, we're asking you to set up your preference and to put as much time in that as you have uh, available. The second piece is ongoing. Content creation is just messy. It is not as easy as like, you know, again, like Uber, like drive my car from here to here. This is all about downloading your preferences. And the way that we look at this is you're trying to onboard not one freelancer, which is too much risk and you're gonna to have to repeat that, or you're not downloading thousands that are just gonna to be too, too generic. We're trying to create a right size team for you, which is the right amount of freelancers that gives you the quality that you're looking for and the flexibility to make sure that you have business continuity and scalability. And so what that depends on is we share every piece of your feedback as a client 
on every piece with any writer that would ever write for you. So you're not just training one writer at a time, please get this edits right. It all goes into a view. And our idea is that you're training a platform and your whole team at once. But what it relies on is pretty deep transparency from our clients to, to share that feedback, which is, which is uncomfortable in the business world, right? You don't wanna rely on your clients to have to do something to do more. It's just uh, as we go into more of these skilled positions in the gig economy, it's going to become a necessary skill set and how you manage these freelancers well. Right. And I think that's a great transition for us to now talk more about your company. Right on your website, you have the big bold phrase, provide exquisite content for an ever-changing algorithm. And I think we've kind of talked about why that's such a, a big problem. And you go on to say we are on-demand content creation to power the digital marketing and SEO. So Break down that those phrases and tell us what your mission is. What what do you what do you want to change about the world using the tools you have at your control at your control? So we want to change two big things: one for the future of work and one for the future of marketing. For the future of work, we want to create highly valuable, um, desired gig economy opportunities for creatives. That is what we want to do. Uh, I think so much of the gig economy has been a race to the bottom of everyone competing as much as they can online versus creating a career development path and really good and good work that's available. That moves me. It goes back to my nonprofit spirit and uh, where I started this. Part of the reason I like it so much is I had much more impact doing this of creating work than I was doing with small business development corporations back then. So that drives us. And then in the world of, of marketing, Part of it is just a pride of ownership. We want to make sure that we are, um, you know, we're providing quality value and in, in, in writing, we, you've got cl your classic iron triangle of outs uh, project management or outsourcing, which is you can have low cost, you can have speed, or you can have quality, but you can't have all three. And I don't believe that. I really think that you should be able to have all three. And so I want to innovate, kind of reinvigorate the space and refresh the ideas of everything that you could do on the content front if you could have a partner with us. So I like to call this content as a competitive advantage. How do you think level one of our value is get your basic stuff done, get it done more efficiently with better writers. That's a nice, you know, 20% value to the company. Uh, level two is being able to do that at scale. And number three is to create custom content programs that you as a marketer had never been able to do before, but now you have the tools to create it like the, like the legal program that did not exist before. And we should be able to do that in every space where we find architects who are running our home services writing programs. We have nurses who are running our medical compliance uh, content programs. And if you can be the marketer who thinks of that, you can set yourself apart in such an interesting way uh, and the best thing about being a platform is someone else always knows a better way of using you than you have thought of yourself. So I'm really excited to see what the marketers think of to uh, to use what we want to give them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, given that you have positioned yourself in that way, is there a target audience that you believe you can best serve with that mission? So I think it, I think it serves a lot of people. So, uh, the interesting thing about marketers is uh, our biggest clients are not the biggest companies. So uh, the, the, the ones that we're writing 500 pieces of legal content per month for is only a 15 person company. Uh, and our second uh, largest client that we're doing 1200 different pieces of uh, original content for, for every month, they have like hundreds of people. So really it's about the marketers that 
themselves and can you set yourselves apart with content as a strategy. Uh, we started as a small business company. Uh, we start, our original name was Blog Mutt. And so our, our logo was working like a dog to fill your blog. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and so we were writing, you know, really quick three, four paragraph pieces on Google. What you were talking about, you didn't have to do much to score an SEO in the early days. Uh, and then, of course, all of that changes and the SMBs move to agencies. Uh, and so now I think the next transition is working with larger enterprises that are trying to reinvent uh, what their their older strategies are, especially a lot of larger companies. There's like a an early adopter factor where SEO is a strategy that has worked kind of uh, progressively. First, you had the early adopters, and now the latecomers to this are going to be larger companies, you know, manufacturers, things like this that could use the exact same playbook of how you win an SEO 15 years later. Um, and so we're working with a lot more enterprises that are trying to get more creative or at least learn the lessons from other industries. And that's why I was excited for this interview. I, I love, uh, not to play on the, the dog term, but I love fighting with the underdog. Uh, and, and, and digital marketing is that tool that allows the David to take on the Goliath. And if you get that right, you can overtake the giant by creating that moat, by carving out a unique message and a unique niche and changing the discussion in favor of your product. And so for those people who are listening to this, who are building platforms, I hope they're pulling from this conversation that if you don't have the internal firepower, you better find someone like your company to help craft a message and a plan that can create that mold around your product. That's, that's, that's what I'm aiming for. That's what we hope to do. And then, I, and then the extension of that is I think that's going to be true in so many areas. I think it's going to be like your pool of designers, your pool of QA resources. And I think there's going to be a movement that parallels the SaaS revolution that went work type by work type of how do you make it more flexible? How do you make it like really focus on one work type and, and have a deeper level of expertise? And I think that's going to happen in these marketplace gig economy companies that bring together platforms with each one of the workforce and the skilled labor that comes with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when a company goes through this process with you at the end of the day, how do they end up measuring success in both a leading and a lagging method? Wow. Uh, measuring success in content is much more challenging than I would like it to be. And so I think there's a lot of variability. There are those who just measure it based on SEO, which is, you know, am I ranking for enough terms? The general, you know, the general belief is you're writing content not because you love to create content, but because you love getting new customers. And so if you love creating new customers, this is the conversation that you're having with them. Everything is moved towards inbound. They're going to find you. This is another big a big trend of the post-pandemic world is outbound sales is just a lot less attractive. And so creating the content when your audience is ready to look for you is even more valuable now. So you've got the SEO side. Am I ranking? Uh, am I, how, am I, how am I looking on my search engine results? Uh, how much traffic am I getting from that? I think the piece that is undervalued in content creation is the brand piece and how much that helps you overall as a company. So it helps you in so many ways. If you're being found and your content is valuable to the audience or your prospects who are looking for you, your funnel, you can build a premium brand. Premium brands dr drive 10 to 20% more in pricing at least. So you can actually increase the value of your product and 
perception that also helps you close your funnel much more quickly. Your sales team doesn't have to do as much work if there's already pieces of content out there. And then it can be repurposed for your sales team to go out and use these when so much sales material uh, collateral gets stale so quickly the more you innovate, your sales team is going to tell you what works. My executive coach told me that, do you know how, do you know the number one way to find out if your case study is working or not? If your sales team is sending it proactively without you making them. Mm. I think that's exactly true. That's right. Uh, that's, uh, that makes sense. So those are kind of like the four different pillars. And I think each agency measures it differently for their clients. The ones that it's easiest to measure are the ones that are going big, right? If you're going big, if you're putting out 400, 500 pieces of content per month, you can really tell if you're moving the needle on a lot of these a lot quicker. Because the other piece is that it's really hard. There's portfolio theory. If uh, Larry Kim's, I wrote an article once, I can't remember the percentages, but he basically said that 3% of his blogs, I'm paraphrasing here, drive like 98% of his traffic. And if he knew which 3% those were, he would only write those. Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Before we wrap up the podcast, can you please give a little bit of advice to those entrepreneurs who are launching platforms right now and that are considering how to allocate those marketing dollars to get themselves discovered? What would you tell them? I would tell them to focus on only a couple things at a time. Um, Rand Fishkin, famous digital marketer, has this, uh, uh, what he calls the T-shaped marketer graph, which is all of the different ways that you could set yourself apart Um, and all the different things you have to know to be a modern marketer. And it is so much. And the key is to go, the reason it's called the T-shaped graph is that you need to be able to go deep at least in one of those places. I would love it if it was content and SEO, but maybe in your space that doesn't make the most sense. So, you know, you could be a LinkedIn marketer, you could be a YouTube marketer, but find your channel and start off with one. And then the second is build your brand early, at least have enough to describe what your brand is so that you don't get it in such a transactional relationship with your audience that you're seen as only selling as opposed to creating value. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I like that. I'm going to go get a t-shirt and put a big T on it and then make people have me explain why I have it on there. Cause that, that makes sense. You know, you have a a foot in in each of the areas, but one of those you got to go deep in and stay focused on it until you have a brand that people recognize. I love that feedback. How can customers uh, and freelancers find you and link up with the company. Great, thank you for asking. Uh, our website is verblio.com, verb, V-E-R-B-L-I-O.com. Uh, both writers and uh, and clients and prospects if you wanna learn more about us. I also have a podcast that I've been, uh, I interview digital marketers, gig economy folks, and uh, basically major trends in marketing. You can find that at The Verblio Show on any major podcast platform or find me on LinkedIn and I'll share it all with you as you go. But thanks for your interest. We will take all of that and put that in the show notes. Make sure you guys, you check out the podcast. You get to the website, freelancers, customers, you got to check out everything that we've talked about. Because if you are out trying to create a brand, you don't have to do it all in-house anymore. You got to partner and create, co-create content that has impact. And Steve has given you all the ways to do that here in this podcast. Steve, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and bringing us along in this digital marketing journey and making us a whole lot smarter than we were when we started the podcast. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. And thanks for putting out such great content about the gig economy and, and, uh, and the future of work. Thanks to Steve Park Ross, CEO of Verblio, for being on the podcast.
we learned everything about the future of marketing and got a whole lot smarter about how to integrate digital content and digital creators into our business and business models. This is why I tell you, CEOs, founders, market makers, and market leaders come here to talk about the future of the gig sharing and platform economies. What's next for gigging everything in the sharing economy? We have more market leaders. Enloya, the CEO of Enloya, Manuel Sanchez, will be on the platform and tell you how he's organizing lawyers and helping them join the gig economy. After that, we'll have the CEO of Curb, Rob Brown, telling you how they're going to transform how you park your vehicle. Yeah, that's a big, big part of the sharing economy. They're the Airbnb of that in their space. And of course, Elle and I will be back to give you more gigging news. My co-host, L Tucker, is gonna bring the good stuff and we're gonna tell you every story that's impacting the gig sharing and platform economy. If you like gigging, you might also like one of my other podcasts, Gorillapreneur, The Art of Waging Small Business Warfare. If you're a startup or small business and you're a maverick, that might be the podcast for you. That podcast teaches David's how to defeat the Goliath. So if you're a small business or startup and you wanna disrupt your market, that might be the podcast you need to tune into. Then, of course, there's career coaching X's and O's. I've been around a long time. I've got 25 plus years as a senior executive, founded my own company, grew it, and sold it to a Fortune 500. So I have a few things I can tell you about how to get that corner office. Remember to like, share, and comment on the show. It helps us defeat those pesky algorithms that Steve talked about a little earlier. Till next time, guys, remember, disrupt or die. Peace.